Welcome to another episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And we've got some pretty exciting content today. This is the topic that kind of inspired this whole podcast. Yeah, this is something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And for a while, I, I was planning on writing a dissertation about this topic. Um, but then we decided we have so much to say about the wire, let's just uh, do a podcast. And so this became an episode instead. So what we're going to talk about today is uncrossable thresholds and the phantasm of the county in the wire. So phantasm, I've never really heard that word or like I've heard it, but I don't know what it means. So can you... So just to explain a little bit, a phantasm would be sort of like a figment of the imagination or an illusion or an apparition. Um, and so when I say the phantasm of the county, what I'm getting at is that uh, Baltimore County is something distinct from city of Baltimore. And I think we see that a few different times over the course of the series. Um, and the way I see it manifesting most is with this idea of uncrossable thresholds and uh, sort of the liminal space, liminal being the threshold. Okay, so what was the first instance watching The Wire where you sort of saw this uncrossable threshold theme? It was actually a scene that you pointed out to me as being really interesting. It's season one when the, the detail are setting up their office in that terrible little warehouse and Herc is trying to get the desk in mm -hmm. or out. I can't remember. But yeah. then he gets Carver on the other side and they still can't do it. And then Daniels gets in the mix and they're just finding it impossible to move the door or the desk over the, the space of the doorway. And then finally, Herc says something like, well, we're never going to get it out. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's Daniel says, out. Because the people on the other side were trying to get it in. So they were exactly. basically pushing one against another, which I think you drew my attention of how that's kind of a metaphor for the way the police force works all the time you know they're yeah they're um at odds and and pushing on either side of the same issue yeah um so that's a really interesting scene and it made me think there's all sorts of uncrossable thresholds and that's just the very most literal example that we see um but it comes up again and again yeah i mean i think that scene definitely for me stood out because it's one of um the most symbolic scenes i think in terms of the way that the police force works together. And I like, you know, when, when they do well, when they do work together, like there are some um, examples in the police, like where they, they connect really well. So like the different forces connect and communicate and they, they make great progress on cases. And then the, most of the time, and I'm thinking of particularly in season four, when um, the Randy, is giving information to the police and this whole snitching thing comes up and Carver wants to protect him but it mm -hmm. turns out that Herc just like totally drops the ball and they miscommunicate and to me the desk scene is so like symbolic of exactly that just... yeah the miscommunication it's funny that you immediately said season four because I'm thinking of season two there is a great example of uh the dropped communication when Herc and Carver are put on the assignment of waiting for Nick Sabotka to come home so that they can arrest him. Oh, yeah. And no one tells them for a day and a half that Nick has already turned himself in. Mm -hmm. He's at the police station. Um, 
And so like another great example of just nobody telling anybody what they're doing and it leads to this, this impasse and an inability to get things done properly. Right. So, so the desk in terms of an incrossable threshold there is, is really, is it, so it's kind of representative as a communication breakdown? Like, is that, or is that not part of this phantasm concept? Well, I mean, I, looking at it sort of at the 30,000 foot level, um, the desk in any piece of literature, you know, the desk is a symbol for work, um, institution, um, office. Um, those kinds of things and so literally a desk unable to cross the threshold I think is um, representative of the police force unable to cross this threshold from barely adequate to actually functional um, so that one's not necessarily as tied to the the specter or the phantasm of the county but I saw it as kind of an entry point into I want to look for this a lot more. I want to see these uncrossable thresholds. And it was like, the more I looked, the more that there were. So the desk is definitely, I think, a really interesting concept. But that, I mean, the county's not really mentioned in the desk scene. No, it's not. But I think if we more broadly look at that scene as um, the inability to cross from, you know, non-functional to functional, from bad to good, from, you know, maybe dark to light. Mm -hmm. That uh, can be expanded further if we look at the county as sort of the good, the functional, the light. So when, so then drawing on this um, uncrossable thresholds and speaking specifically of the county, what's it like, what do you think is the best example of that? Um, Well, there's, there's a really key line I think um, also in season one when McNulty ends up bringing Bubbles along to his kids soccer game and they're not really outside city of Baltimore but they're kind of getting closer they're more in the suburbs it's not really inner city anymore and I see that as kind of the threshold space or the liminal space between the county and the city and Bubbles looks around and sees this idyllic suburban scene of you know soccer moms and kids running around and it all seems so happy and he says to McNulty there's a thin line between heaven and here Mm -hmm. Um, kind of again drawing attention to that threshold between heaven the good and here which is presumably city of Baltimore which is the not so good Right, and I mean, Bubbles is really depicted as this, like, super urban character. I mean, he's homeless, so that's obviously a huge contrast to this, like, very wealthy suburban neighborhood. Yeah. Um, one thing that's interesting to me is that we, I think we associate Bubbles with poverty and homelessness and urban life so much, but then later when he... Um, tries to get clean for the first time, he goes to his sister's house. And she lives in this, it's not a, doesn't look like a wealthy neighborhood, but it's certainly like a really like cute, idyllic sort of white picket fence. Like I think actually the sister legitimately has a white picket fence and he goes through the gate to go and knock on her door and, and ask to stay there. Mm-hmm. So like, it's interesting because he's not, he's not totally this like urban character. He does have this other side yeah, I think maybe there's a little bit of permeability over the threshold that Bubbles has that maybe a lot of other characters don't have. 
Um, and maybe the ultimate symbol of that is that bubbles eventually gets clean. Yeah. Um, but looking at some of the other more inner city urban characters, like the corner boys, they are not able to cross the threshold, escape the city of Baltimore, um, even when presented with the opportunity to do so. Yeah, so the corner boys, when they're, they, I mean, they're so entrenched in inner city Baltimore life. Yeah, they don't even know any different. Um, the first episode of season two, when Bodie is charged with driving the car down to Philly and the radio station starts going out, he's uh, yeah. just confused and he has no idea what's going on. And his, you know, co-driver says, well, we're out of the city now. And I think Bodie says something like, oh, I've, I've never been out of Baltimore, mm-hmm. um, which speaks a little bit to how comfortable he is in his, uh, in his natural habitat of the urban environment. Mm-hmm. But it also in season one, Bodhi gets sent up to... Um, Boys Village. Boys Village, or like baby booking, you know, they sometimes yeah. call it that in the show, which is in the county. Um, and when Herc and Carver are meant to drive up there to collect him, we see how far removed it is from city of Baltimore when they're, you know, making jokes about how they got the shit detail because they have to drive all the way out there. You know, right. it's, they emphasize how far away it is from Baltimore. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting um, mirroring in, in that scene because as Bodie is escaping from Boy's Village, he's, remember, he steals the mop bucket and he's pushing this mop bucket along um, to sort of look like a janitor so that the staff don't notice him. And the final shot of him doing that zooms in on this like super dirty mop water. Um, and then the zoom out is of the cup of coffee with cream in it that's in Hurricane Carver's car where they're talking about how they have this shit detail. And the water, like, it's, it, it, it almost goes, the, like, the two water or liquids, I guess, blend. Yeah. It, no, I see definitely what you're driving at. Um, you know, you might say, like, being the janitor is the shit detail, just like mm-hmm. driving out to the county to collect this 16-year-old is the shit detail. Um, and they do tie that together, I think, with the, the liquids. Um, but what's key is that Bodie doesn't stay out in the county. He escapes. He goes back to city of Baltimore. And it's like there's an um, inescapable pull on the corner boys to come back. Um, right. And, which they do. And Wallace does the same thing. Um, he is sent out to, I think it's his grandmother's house out in the county. And mm-hmm. he, he says, well, what's that sound? And it's crickets. And he's never heard them before. Right. Um, and now his... His, I guess, escape or his pullback to Baltimore from the county is perhaps the most tragic of the show. Yeah. Because when he comes back, they assume that he's been a snitch, and that's when um, Bodie and Poot are tasked with uh, killing him. Yeah, and the sad part is that Wallace really has the chance to escape. He's one of the younger corner boys. He's mm-hmm. out with family in the county. D'Angelo is willing to give him a pass. Yeah, and yeah, and so he he's so close to uh, you know crossing that threshold out of the the life of crime, I guess. And uh, he wants to come back. He's calling Poot from a payphone, just wanting to talk, wanting to get back to Baltimore. Um, and unfortunately, it's his undoing in the end. And I think that's uh, a recurrent theme. Yeah, being pulled back into the camp, or sorry, into the city of Baltimore, is is um, kind of this 
in a, inevitable fate that the, the characters have to deal with. Yeah, and actually uh, a lot of his tragic ending is also made that much more traffic, or tragic by the breakdown of the communication of the police because they forget that they have Wallace out in the county. So it's almost kind of like this out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. They forget that they have him out there. And then something comes up and, and Daniels remembers and is like, oh shit, and then calls and then finds out that Wallace is back in Baltimore. Yeah, and the out of sight, out of mind is, I think, a really key point about the county um, because City of Baltimore is only concerned with City of Baltimore, especially in the police department. Um, so out of sight, out of mind uh, leads really, really nicely into another example of an uncrossable threshold. Um, which informs most of season two, and that is the floater in the harbor. So season two opens uh, with the the scene where McNulty's on the boat, they end up finding this floating body, um, and at first everyone thinks, okay, it's, it's gonna just be a jumper, but it turns out that there's some blunt force trauma and it's a murder. And Rawls, makes a point of saying, okay, this is a Baltimore County case. Mm-hmm. And it's like, he's he's really set on getting it to the county because then it's that kind of out of sight, out of mind. City of Baltimore doesn't have to worry about it, even though we're talking about a difference of just a few yards. Right. And so that's when McNulty charts the, the tides and the currents and yeah. faxes it over to the county police to say... It's not a Coast Guard issue, it's not a county issue, it's a Baltimore police issue. Yeah, McNulty, Prince of Tides. And <laughs> so what's kind of funny is this case, I guess, of the, the floater, um, the scene, when it opens, we think, okay, this is a city of Baltimore, going to be a McNulty case, and then it crosses this threshold or the liminal space into the county, and then the case comes back um, because of McNulty's efforts. And what's funny about it is that McNulty's is giving himself more work, Mm -hmm. A, when he does all the charting of the tides, and then B, when he has this really complicated um, 14 dead girls, which, you know, all link up together. So, but he wants that for some reason, mostly to stick it to his department, but Mm -hmm. also, you know, the, the case, you know, it's an inevitable pull of the case. Exactly, exactly, which I guess also relates back to our episode one discussion of McNulty and his, I mean, that's his his downfall is this desire to have the best case and always be working on the hardest, toughest case of the game. Well, and I think what's great about the season two example of the uncrossable threshold is how literal it makes it. When McNulty has the map rolled out on the table and it has that kind of dotted line and on one side it says Baltimore County and on one side it says City of Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a great visual representation of um of that imaginary line sort of this phantasm of the county that actually can never be reached or at least um stayed in right and there's definitely life and death on either side like it it does seem like for a lot of the characters the county represents life or like being alive and then the pull back into baltimore is kind of can be representative of death. Like, you can see that with Wall- Wallace. He yeah. could escape. He could live if he stayed in the county, but he doesn't. He comes back. Mm-hmm. If Bodie had gone to Boys Village in the county and actually, um, 
you know, tried to, to turn his life around, he would have had the opportunity for a brand new life. The, yeah. the floater in season two, she's alive when she's in the county. Yeah, good and, point. She's and, alive in the county but dies in the city. Exactly. Um, well, and then there's a, another character who is from the county, and that's Chardine our season one um, stripper from Orlando's. And I think she mentions in her first conversation with D'Angelo that she's she's from the county. Mm -hmm. Um, But she gets pulled to the city as well and then gets wrapped up in this sort of sex trade work. Exactly. So Chardine, when she... Well, when you're right. So she first tells D'Angelo she's from the county and he says, oh, you're a country girl. And she says, no, I'm from the county. So there does seem to also be a, a distinction. They don't, it's, it's not the country. They, they wouldn't call themselves. And actually, uh, Wallace says that, or Poot says that to Wallace. He says, oh, you're a country boy now. And he says, yeah. no, I can't sleep out here. It's too quiet. But I almost wonder if um, that distinction, Chardine makes it because she's from the county, but to people from city of Baltimore, it's all the same. As soon as you cross the city limits, you may as well be in the middle of nowhere. You may as well be in the country, even if it's just Baltimore County, mm-hmm. um, which is still, I think, um, if I remember from our drive through it, is still you yeah. know a bit of a metropolis. Yeah, yeah, totally. So Chardine and D'Angelo have a relationship, and D'Angelo has some interesting perspectives on the county too. Yeah, there's a scene when he he's starting to get too um, emotionally crushed by the game, and he makes a comment like, I just wish I could just get a place out in the county, just somewhere where I could breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he says that when he's ready to roll. Yeah. On his family. Right, says, and it's in the interrogation room, right? He yeah, just, he, he says he's, he'll talk about anyone, but he just, he wants a place out in the county so he can breathe and be like regular folk. Yeah, and I think that comes back to the theme of City of Baltimore representing death. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that um, D'Angelo ends up getting suffocated, strangled. You know, lack of breathing is how he dies. Um, and in his mind, the the county was a place to get some air. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, I can't before. take credit for that. Somebody mentioned that um, in, I think maybe either Reddit or uh, IMDb or something like that. And when we find it, we'll put it in our show notes. Yeah. Um, but I, I see that tying back to the idea of the county being life, city being death. Yeah, and it's definitely interesting because, again, he has, an, like, he does have the opportunity to, to get out there. Like, the detectives, I think, are willing to put D'Angelo out somewhere in the county and give him this new life and offer him his regular folk kind of thing. But then his mom comes back and is like, how are you going to start over without your people and you need your family and your little boy and Darnett? And so... D'Angelo is drawn back in. It, it is still an uncrossable threshold. He can't get to the county, and inevitably it leads to his death. Yeah. Um, so again, a, a really sad example. And so most of what we talked about has just come up in the first two seasons, and I'm sure that there's a lot more examples in later seasons as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, the more I watch The Wire and watch for these uncrossable thresholds or these moments of liminal space the more they seem to appear. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I mean, the, the county jail is another place that seems to be different, right? There's the city jail, and then there's the getting jailed out in the county. And um, 
when Levy is supposed to be D'Angelo's lawyer, um, he is supposed to get this sort of like cushy jail cell, but instead he gets put out to this like county jail and he chooses to have a public defender and um, that's what leads the detectives to think that he's he could flip on his family. Right. Um, but it does seem like... And then I think Jessup, uh, which is where they a lot of them go to the federal prison, I, I, and I don't know Baltimore well enough to do this, but I think that that's outside of city limits and that's kind of... Well, and Omar gets jailed, and mm-hmm. he gets jailed in the city, and he's very concerned because he's crossed so many of the people that are in that city jail mm-hmm. that he calls in a favor, um, and I don't remember who the favor is from, but he gets moved to the county where fewer people know him yeah. and know of his reputation as being a stick-up boy. Right. Um, that's, and in, that's in season four. Right, and so that, again, is an example of the county being a little bit more representative of life because if Omar stayed in the city jail, I think somebody would have killed him. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's crossed so many people. Yeah, that's um, one of the only times I was, like, really scared for Omar. <laughs> when those two big guys come into his jail cell and he thinks this is it. Yeah. And they give him, uh, they give him a shank and they tape some phone, uh, books. phone books around his ribs. Yeah. So, as with the tragic hero that we talked about last time, I'm wondering, like, like the county and Baltimore to me seem, you already sort of said this, but, like, light and dark. Like, and it makes me think of, I feel like when I was reading Frankenstein in high school, we talked a lot about, in Gothic literature, light and dark, and, like, the symbolism of it. Is there, like... Is light and dark uh, like a, um, a literary element that we should be thinking of? Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't think that's necessarily specific to Victorian or Gothic. Um, you could look at Shakespeare, for instance, and there's lots of um, juxtaposition of light and dark. But I think you're right. Um, for instance, there are lots of articles about Charles Dickens using light and dark imagery in his novels. And mm-hmm. The Wire is very self-aware about... Um, how it uses Charles Dickens as a reference point. And there's even an episode in season five called The Dickensian Effect. Right. Um, So I think maybe a lot of this light, dark, good, bad is an homage to that, uh, that tradition from Dickens. Mm -hmm. Um, But I agree with you. Like, we, we do see it in a lot of literature. Okay, so that's our discussion today about the phantasm of the county and uncrossable thresholds. And if you have some more examples that we didn't mention today, either of uncrossable thresholds or what the symbolism of the county is, then let us know. Definitely. You can tweet us at Rewired Podcast. Or you can email us, podcast.rewired at gmail.com. And this episode was produced, written, and hosted by Bailey Reed and Kelly Reed. And we would like to say thank you to Opinion Podcast App for helping us produce these episodes. Yeah, it makes it really easy. And the music is by Flo Florg. You can find that on SoundCloud. It's a remix of Tom Waits, Way Down in the Hole. And we'll see you next week. Way Down in the Hole.